Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers today. and jump at the Countrywide, the politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello there. You're listening to another episode of Countrywide. I'm Hannah Joes, talking to you from Dubbo, and I've got your program this week that's all about the big ways in which farming either could be changing or already is. We're going to be talking about yet another potential disruption to global food production and what happens if the European Union bans a widely used weed killer. We'll also be talking about cow-free milk, not plant-based, but cow-free, and where Norco thinks the demand for such a product may be heading. But first, let's touch briefly on something that's been troubling farmers ever since the flooding, and that is the state of the roads. The problem is so big now that four of the country's most influential lobby groups have teamed up to put pressure on the federal government. They want it to inject $5.5 billion into improving the nation's road network over the next four years. The alliance includes grain growers, the National Farmers Federation, Australian Local Government Association and Australian Livestock and Rural Transporters Association. And it is a huge job, largely led by local councils who have tens of thousands of kilometres of road they need to repair. Zach Whale is the General Manager of Policy and Advocacy at Grain Growers and explained to Amelia Bernasconi why they formed this alliance. So road funding has been on the agenda for a while and lots of people have been talking a lot about the state of the roads right across Australia, but it's got to such a critical point that the National Farmers Federation, the Australian Livestock and Rural Transporters Association, the Australian uh, Local Government Association and Grain Growers have come together to really hammer home uh, what's needed in terms of uh, funding right now uh, in the lead-up to the May budget so that we can actually get some of these issues addressed. Uh, because the, the times now, it's a huge problem, um, it's a big price tag, but it's a big payoff uh, for all regional road users if we can get this right. It probably feels like a lifetime for those that have been living it, but um, we have seen an extraordinary number of flood events this year and other natural disasters. Can you take us through it and, and the impacts that you've been hearing back from your members? Yeah, sure. So since January 22, there's been 23 flood events with, you know, hundreds of declarations across most local government areas. And the especially wet couple of years on the East Coast have just meant that the road surface has just broken up and there has not been um, the ability to actually fix that uh, quickly enough uh, so that road users can, can actually have a, a safe uh, and productive road surface to get critical inputs into regional communities, uh, to get exports uh, or, or produce from farm to destination. And as I said, also um, to actually ensure that our roads are safe. It's a monumentous task. And it's something that anyone who has driven in in rural Australia over the last few years would understand. So, you know, it's a productivity issue, it's a safety issue, and ultimately it comes down to getting the right amount of funding back into local governments so that they can get those roads repaired. And in addition, we're seeing more and more need for uh, not just um, standard repair, so you get a pothole, you fix a pothole, but how do we actually better repair these roads and rebuild roads to a point where they can actually withstand uh, greater climate issues into the future. So we're going to get you know, more and more adverse weather conditions and it's not enough to just repair the roads to the same spec. We have to actually think about what it's going to take um, to get the roads repaired so that they can handle um, these conditions into the future. And that is not a cheap task. No. So take us through what you're calling on ahead of the May budget. 
Yeah, so in the, in the May budget, we're asking for a one-off injection of a billion dollars over four years directed specifically um, at, at councils impacted by floods and other natural disasters to ensure that they can rebuild to a higher standard. Uh, we're also calling for $800 million over four years for the Roads to Recovery Program, uh, $300 million a year over four years to address first and last mile freight productivity issues. That's a critical one. We hear so much about first and last mile. Often the middle part of the network um, like imagine your, your big trunk roads and your, your national highways, often they can handle um, high productivity. But the first mile, so from the mailbox um, to your first point of receival or your local market, um, or the last bit, once you actually get off that big arterial road um, to where the, where the goods are going, that's the critical bit that actually needs um, some work. And finally, targeted funding through the Roads of Strategic Importance Program to improve long-term climate resilience of freight networks in general, in addition to um, that targeted funding I mentioned earlier about, um, you know, targeted funding for local government, that would go some way um, to really help um, fix these these rural-focused issues um, to make sure that the safety is improved on our rural roads and also we get that productivity kick. That was Zach Whale from Grain Growers speaking with Amelia Bernasconi. And speaking from regional Australia right now, the networks certainly are looking worse for wear after all that flooding we had. And while we're on farmers banding together to get things done, two farmers are trying a whole new way for grain growers to reach customers without the middleman. The two men are putting together and exporting a 35,000-tonne bulk shipment of milling wheat to Oman in what could be a first for the industry. Western Victorian grain grower Andrew Weiderman and his Western Australian counterpart Barry Large have started the company LW Investments Australia to export grain, including their own, directly from farmers to end users. Andrew Weiderman says end users like Oman Flour Mills want to buy directly from growers. We've been talking to Oman Flour Mills for quite some time. They have been purchasing wheat from Australia previously and barley, uh, but they have been talking about trying to connect directly with farmers, directly with grain coming off their farm uh, and basically ending up uh, at their uh, facility over in Amman. And a long time spent lining up the logistics, but now it's it's all happening. Yes, look, it is. Yeah, we're loading the ship today uh, out of Geelong. Uh, we're using, obviously, the Reardon facility this time to... Uh, help work through all of the complexities of it. Uh, it's certainly been a, a learning curve outside of the normal farming practices, dealing with shipping lines and uh, demurrage and all these other potential issues that could increase the overall cost of it. But uh, the support we've had from the farmer network has been amazing. I wanted to ask how you as a farmer have, have sourced 35,000 tonnes of wheat. Some of it's your own, but, but where'd you get the rest? Yeah, so look, that's all been sourced through um, other farmers from the top end of the Mallee all the way down to uh, almost the Southern Divide. Uh, we've had a lot of grain that we've unfortunately not been able to take because of the quality of the season, but there's certainly been those farmers that have been fortunate enough to have that good quality grain. We've been able to buy that at a reasonable price in the marketplace and... Uh, yeah, it's just sort of connecting, I suppose, the dots. And, you know, long-term, uh, you know, our hope and our passion is to try and make sure that those farmers that want to know more about where their product ends up uh, are involved in this process because uh, I think, you know, traditionally a lot of farmers have tipped it to a bulk handler or to a local grain store and never really thought about where their grain ends up. But in this case, it's actually meeting those people that are using it and, and listening to their story too about why they're trying to work more closely with the... Uh, production end rather than through the middleman.
What are the logistics for loading? Have you got that grain accumulated at port or is it being trucked down from on-farm storage? Yeah, so look, the shipment is just short of 35,000 tonnes. We've got close to 20,000 tonnes already accumulated uh, close to the wharf. Uh, we're now looking at uh, logistics of bringing it from up country. So, uh, you know, it's a lot of truck movements, uh, Angus, and uh, a lot of people that are obviously employed through this process from the trucking lines right through to those that have storage as well up country. We've used small private stores as well to accumulate some grain in. The farmers wanted to sell directly at harvest, but uh, most of the grain is coming directly off the farm now uh, from out of all of those areas we've spoken about. Obviously a big concern for farmers when marketing their grain is is getting paid well and and getting paid on time. Uh, How have you gone about securing those payment terms? Yeah, so look... uh, to do business the way that we wanted to do it, and this is what's taken um, quite a long time to talk through with uh, with Amman, is that they put the money up front and then we know we've got that secure capital to be able to buy the grain off the farmer. And that's the only way that we were ever intending to buy it, is to make sure that farmers get paid. I mean, after being an advocate for payment to farmers for a long time, and we've changed, obviously, through that process, the payment terms, uh, we've been... Pu- paying farmers and also contractors where we can get the logistics of paperwork in place within five days of end of week. Uh, and we've, in some cases, paid a lot of people a lot quicker than that. So essentially you've been the one sourcing and paying for that grain on, on behalf of the Omanis? That is correct, yes. So it's us, we're sourcing the grain uh, and then paying the farmer for it. Uh, and then uh, the grain then is loaded onto the ship. What's the motivation, Andrew? I mean, you, you talked about provenance and, and creating better linkages between growers and, and those end users, but, I mean, at the end of the day, how do the dollars stack up in terms of what, what the farmer's getting paid going through this process compared to just dropping it off at the local bulk handler? Yeah, so look, Angus, what we're looking to do is obviously pay farmers with good storage for that storage, uh, and that's the key here is to make sure that uh, those that have got good quality storage, got good quality systems in place, uh, information around, uh, you know, the growing of the grain and things will come in time uh, as we implement those. But it's really a starting point uh, now is to try and find those farmers uh, with, you know, excellent storage. And there's been big investments uh, right throughout the Wimmera and Mallee from farmers and uh collecting those things but we really just want to pay them well for that storage uh, and uh, try and create a new pathway to market for them and uh, you know a lot of farmers meetings that I've been to you know in the advocacy space uh, farmers been asking about this for some time Um, the feedback has just been amazing Um, you know there are a few detractors out there like there are in in certain circles on on different issues but at the end of the day the support that we've had has uh, just it's actually been a lot more than I thought we would have seen. That was Andrew Widerman, a farmer in Western Victoria and a director of LW Investments Australia. Now let's broaden the horizon a little bit and turn to South Africa for an interesting reason. The country has been having an energy crisis, which has now plunged it into darkness for up to 8 or even 12 hours a day. Last month, it had 100 consecutive days of power cuts like these, and it's had trouble with them for years. But these rolling blackouts, or what is locally called load shedding, have forced farmers and food processors to look at small-scale renewable energy, and there is a mad rush for it. The chief economist of the South African Agricultural Business Chamber, Wandele Silobo, told Clint Jasper the crisis poses a national security risk. It's quite severe, uh, uh, Clint, and it's negatively affecting a large share of agriculture because to give you just a, a glimpse 
of how energy dependent South Africa's primary agriculture is, we derive roughly about half of the farming income uh, from the farms that are heavily heavy users of agriculture through irrigation and some, of course, in the poultry and the dairy space. So the current blackout, it goes into different stages. We have what we call stage one, stage two. That means how many hours you wouldn't have uh, electricity. On stage two, you wouldn't have electricity, say, for about four hours a day in different two-hour slots. But when it goes beyond that stage, let's say we're on stage three all the way to stage five, then the hours could stretch to about six to nearly eight hours for some. Is there always a degree of load shedding in South Africa that's particularly bad at the moment, or is it a new practice? This is a new practice. We've had load shedding in various intervals since around about 2008. But I mean, we then went for years without actually seeing this. It's the first time now that we're seeing it as severe as uh, as in the present. In fact, starting from January this year, that's where everybody saw that we have a crisis in our door. What are farmers doing to adapt to this? The farmers uh, this time around, they've actually looked into this load shedding to say, can we look at it uh, uh, and also as, as an advantage for greening the South African agricultural sector, making sure that the solar farms are, are, are put up in place and then some that can generate power using biogas can do that. So they are all of these own generation, but more to the green side that people are thinking about. And the South African government is also thinking of the ways of saying, how do we subsidize our own generation in the farm so that the farmers can put their own energy generation? And of course, over time, there is a thinking that maybe this the South African state-owned energy utility, ESCOM, can buy back some of the energy from some of these farms that they won't be using either in winter or during the day if they only use their energy at night uh, for, for irrigation. So those are some of the things that I look we are looking at. There's legislative work that is happening, but also thinking about how do we set up subsidies for own generation in the farms. And some farmers who have a good balance sheet have already started to put some of these alternative energy sources in their farms. And has the load shedding come about um, since last year? Is is it linked to the Ukraine war when we saw electricity generation just get more expensive generally because of the lack of gas? What brought this load shedding crisis on? In the South African case, it's more of the ageing infrastructure of our uh, own uh, power supply. If you think about ESCOM power plants, there's a lot of ageing of that, but there's also corruption which many people in the world, they've heard about what we call the state capture in South Africa, which was linked with the previous president, President Zuma. So during that era, there was a lot of mismanagement of funds, but also mismanagement of the infrastructure. So it's a combination of all of those things. But over time, we've also seen South Africa's consumption of energy increasing, while the investments on generating uh, more energy was actually fairly uh, muted or, or since 2008 or so. So there was that challenge. And of course, we were using also diesel to power up wind turbines and the other things, which then links to the Russia-Ukraine uh, war because the diesel prices and the energy prices in general have been uh, increasing. And that, of course, makes it very expensive uh, for South Africa to continue heavily relying on that route. But I would say then it's both the global issues Uh, and more so uh, the domestic ones. You did some writing around the fact that with the grid so unstable and this load shedding, it actually does present like a a national security risk. 
absolutely these are some of the key things then that we we currently thinking about which is why the private sector of south africa with government and escom has actually been in some of the conversation say is there a way we can lessen the the, the energy um uh, blackouts for those areas that are largely irrigation or are in food production but of course that all depends technically about how everyone is linked to the grid but it is one of those priorities that was Chief Economist of the South African Agricultural Business Chamber, Wanderlei Solobo, speaking with Clint Jasper. Countrywide, the voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio. And while South African farmers are going through it at the moment, farmers all over the world could be affected if the European Union makes a crucial decision this year. There are serious questions being raised about whether the world will be able to produce enough food if Europe bans the commonly used weed killer glyphosate. Victorian-based crop scientist and consultant Harm Van Rees travelled through Europe and North America last year to look at what farmers were doing to try and manage the reduced access to glyphosate. He told Angus Burley he expects the chemical to be banned in the EU this year with big impacts on production to follow. So there's big differences around the world, as we understand. I mean, there's very little pressure in Australia to look at the amount of glyphosate we're using. But, for example, in in Europe, it is highly likely that the product will be banned this year. And that will have huge implications for us as well, because we export grain to the EU, so they've got residue levels. And, I mean, it's time... When there's that amount of pressure on particular chemicals around the world, then we should actually look at what we're doing at home as well. What's that EU ban going to mean? I mean, what are the implications for global food security if if farmers are losing access to glyphosate? Well, exactly. But the EU, it's such a wealthy continent. I mean, they're going to pay higher subsidies to their farmers. So already a significant proportion of farmers' income in the EU is from subsidies and subsidies will increase because I mean, all the farmers we met say they will lose production, but in income-wise, it's probably going to have a much less impact on them. And in Europe, there's still a lot of conventional farming taking place, so it's deep tillage, whereas in Australia, we're 100% well, no-till and min-till. And for us to lose glyphosate would be would be a much bigger impact than it has on Europe. Although most European farmers we met, except for the organic farmers we met, they do not want to use glyphosate because it is such a good product for them. And what's it going to mean, I guess, for Australian production and access to those export markets if we're producing grain with glyphosate in the system? Are we eventually going to lose that access? I haven't got an answer to that because that that remains to be seen. But I can imagine if we put ourselves in the shoes of a European farmer, then they would be very unhappy if it was banned in Europe and they imported grain from jurisdictions around the world, Canada, the US and other places where it'd still be able to be used. Is it worthwhile fighting back against moves to ban glyphosate or or has the argument already been had and and now it's about adapting? Well, I think it's a bit of both. Whether we can persuade people in Europe that, 
you know, ultimately voting for particular political systems to change their mind, well, that's unlikely. But in terms of how we treat that particular issue in relation with glyphosate and other farm chemicals, is that I think there are things that we can do just to make sure that our practices are possibly, you know, are as good as they possibly can be. And Australian regulations already are pretty clear on the use of glyphosate, that it is safe to use at the current systems. Why is there this forensic sort of focus on glyphosate, particularly when, when we know there are other common farm chemicals which are, are much more toxic to human health but, but don't seem to be talked about anywhere near as much? Well, that's a very controversial issue. And I think it's got a little bit to do with Monsanto and the way that Monsanto actually sold the product. I mean, people reacted to that. And now we've got court cases in the in the US and they paid millions of dollars in compensation, billions of dollars in compensation. And that reverberates around the world. And these are the consequences of those early on those actions early in the piece when glyphosate or Roundup was first released. Just finally, Tom, to to summarise, what would it mean? Can you sort of paint a picture about what would it mean in Australia, in the Australian context, if a glyphosate ban were to be put in place? All the benefits from no-till farming will lose those because there is no alternative to glyphosate. I know that we've got, obviously, we've got other products on the market that we have used in the past and continue to use, but some of those already banned. For example, Paraquat has already been banned in most jurisdictions around the world, but we still have it. But none of those alternatives will replace glyphosate as it is. So it is going to be having a big impact on our farming system, especially on no-till farming. And we should be thinking about what can we do to replace glyphosate in case it happens? It's not a panic situation, but it's something that we should be thinking about, at least in the short to medium term, to try and address some of the issues that people are going to have in other jurisdictions around the world when it's banned. And how do you explain to a person on the street who, who has nothing to do with agriculture about how important glyphosate is? And I guess about, you mentioned politics earlier, about how how their vote in, in certain voting settings can have implications for food security. If I had the answer to that, <laughs> I'd be a very happy person. It, it's a really, it's, it's a huge issue for the industry, but I'm trying to raise the awareness how big an issue it is. I don't know what the answer to that question is. So we should be aware of these issues and start thinking about the long-term implications and how we can work with other nations where this is happening and other farming groups, but also in relation to what we communicate about current farming practices and all the benefits of no-till to the general populace. That was crop consultant Harm Van Rees speaking with reporter Angus Verley about what could be on the cards if the EU does ban the common weed killer glyphosate later this year. And while crop farmers have reason to worry about the new development there, 
there could be another big change coming for dairy farmers. Now the question is, would you enjoy cow-free milk? It's not oat milk or almond milk or plant-based in any way. It's actually artificial cow's milk. That means it will have a near-identical taste and nutrients as actual cow's milk, just without the animal being involved. Dairy processor Norco is currently producing trial batches at its Queensland plant. Now, Norco is a major shareholder of Eden Brew, a company which is using CSIRO technology to create this artificial milk. CEO and co-founder of Eden Brew, Jim Fader, told Kim Honan that with increased global demand for protein, the cow-free milk would not be a threat to the dairy industry. Yeah, so we use um, what's called precision fermentation, and effectively we use yeast to brew the proteins that um, are found in milk. So it's a little bit like, I guess, the beer brewers would use yeast to make alcohol to make a drink. We're using yeast to make proteins to make a a milk drink. Uh, So fermentation uh, creates these proteins, and we purify the proteins out um, and turn them into a powder. And then we ship them off to Norco, our co-founder and um, and dairy partner, who add water uh, to rehydrate and bring those proteins back. Um, and then they add the other ingredients in milk and blend it up, and voila, you've got animal-free milk. Tastes exactly the same as dairy milk, and it's almost identical nutritionally. Yeah, that sounds extraordinary. So I guess the, the question is why? Who's your, your target customer? It's a case of the, the food system the world over, not just dairy, is, is challenged over the next generation with a, a forecast increase of protein demand of anywhere from 50 to 100%, depending on whether you, you talk to the World Resources Institute or the World Health Organization. And most of that demand increase is driven by forecast increase uh, or, or lifestyle different consumption choices, if you like, in economies in Asia which are um, becoming more wealthy. So as the population has more money, they make different food choices, uh, amongst other things. And so that is forecasting um, probably the, the biggest increase in demand for food that we've ever had in, in history. And we just don't have two planets to, to kind of double the amount of protein we make across dairy, beef, lamb, chicken, pork, etc. So there is a significant... Uh, effort uh, across the world in in all categories to make the foods we know and love, um, but just from smarter, more resource-savvy ways, if you like. And do you expect it to take a share of the dairy market or or the dairy alternative plant-based market? So a bit of both, and we see our product when it comes to market as being very complementary to uh, Norco's um, milk product. Um, And so some of it will be, I guess, in the way you market um, but we will definitely appeal to both. There, there are two main reasons why people buy dairy. One is sensory and the other is nutrition. And there are three main reasons why people would avoid dairy. So uh, an allergy like uh, to lactose, uh, concerns about environment or concerns about animal welfare. So we actually meet the two reasons why and the three reasons why not. Um, and so we're a little bit like you can avoid your milk and have it too. Um, And so we're going to look to create this category somewhere in the middle and appeal to both consumers. Well, later this month at the Evoke Ag Conference in Adelaide, you'll be on a panel discussing can cow-free milk benefit uh, dairy farmers? And of course, as we mentioned, one of your major shareholders is the Norco Dairy Cooperative. So, you know, how will they benefit? Obviously, you'll have the profits that go to the co-op, but doesn't this product in a way threaten their industry? Uh, it doesn't threaten it, I think, um, for a few reasons. Firstly, um, at the moment, about in Australia, 15% of consumers are avoiding dairy already. So 
Norco's current milk product doesn't appeal to 15% of the market. So you could think of us as their non-dairy division, if you like, um, and they will, uh, with, uh, with our repertoire, be able to sell to 100% of the customers. There's also a significant proportion of dairy drinkers do try alternative milks in any given year. So uh, they're, they're kind of promiscuous customers. Um, so I think it's really important for uh, businesses and including dairy companies to be right on the leading edge of consumer trends and product development to ensure that um, they're always coming out with products that continue to uh, meet consumers' needs. On top of that, as I mentioned, this, this forecast demand for, for dairy or, or all protein is going to go up so much that reasonably the dairy industry just can't double in size in 30 years anyway. So we don't see this as uh, competing with and, and and replacing existing supply. We see this as augmenting uh, that supply to meet future demand. CEO and co-founder of Eden Brew, ending that report by Kim Honan. And on that fascinating note, we are at the end of the program. For more rural news or more detail on any of these stories, you can head over to abc.net.au slash rural. Thanks for listening. Catch you later.